He said, we can't get through. You're blocking everything because you're letting the past uh, creep up on you again. You're letting everything uh, mount up on your shoulders. He said, you're not absorbing what's being told in meetings. You know, he says, I can tell. He says, you need to let go more. And it wasn't until I, you know, listened to that and just decided not to worry so much about what everybody thinks of me and about what my family thinks and my friends and all the damage I've done. Concentrate on getting better. Let go. That was Bob Apple, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast. And today, we have Robert Apple joining us on the show. And Robert is a blogger. He is the founder of Sober Apple Blog. And today he shares his story with us. Bob, at the age of 55 years old, became addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs. His life quickly began to unravel and was forced to retire from his job at UPS after 27 years as a driver. He became an absolute mess and lost everything, his family, his friends, and in no time at all was trying to drink himself to death. Bob finally agreed to go to rehab where he was introduced to sober living homes for the first time, where he ended up spending over two years in a sober living home and was the absolute best decision he ever made in his life. Join us now as Bob takes us through his battle through drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in his life, when he hit rock bottom, and then finally his journey into recovery and sober living up until today. So let's dive into Bob's story, but first... If you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. The first way is by donating via PayPal or Bitcoin. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners who have been generously donating every month to the Share Podcast. Make no mistake about it, you guys are making a huge difference. But again, we can always use more, and now you can even send us donations using Bitcoin. So if you go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com, on the top right corner, there's a donate button. Click on that button, and it'll take you to the page where you can donate either by PayPal or by Bitcoin. On a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me $5 a month or more, there are a few listeners that are sending $10, $20, and even $50 every month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me $5, either by PayPal or by Bitcoin, then by all means, please feel free to donate now. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you, just like in the meetings, that are newcomers. 
The money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast private accountability group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have. All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Robert, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, O, for having me. I'm excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Excellent, excellent. All right, so folks, today we have Robert Apple joining us on the Share Podcast, and Robert was a sober living home manager for two years and is a huge proponent of the sober living concept. So let's dive right in. So first, Robert, take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. Okay. Well, I'm really involved with, uh, I have a, a site where I blog, so I do a lot of blogging, a lot of writing, also finishing up a book that I've written. I don't have many hobbies these days because a lot of my writing and my uh, efforts go towards uh, towards uh, the internet and uh, trying to help people on the internet. But I do, I do exercise a lot. Uh, yeah, I make it a point to get to the gym. Uh, if I can't get to the gym every day, it's every other day. I lift weights. Uh, exercise is so important in recovery. I learned that early on, and it helped tremendously. So normally, yeah, I get up and uh, you know sometimes I'll get on, uh, I'll Skype with people. I get phone calls a lot from my people that I used to live with in the sober living homes. Everybody's it's kind of a community. I spend a lot of time with that. I spend a lot of time uh, reaching out to people on sites uh, like uh, uh, my sponsors. Uh, I'll spend some time on there when I get a chance, and uh, you get to chat with people. That's about it. You know, it's I'm I'm just knee deep in it. So you do a lot of online meetings? Yeah, yeah. I like those. 
Do you have like a regular home group that you attend? Um, do you sponsor guys? Do you currently, do you have a sponsor? I mean, I just asked this just to get a roundabout idea of like how you work your program. Yeah, I still have a sponsor. Um, I don't contact them as much as I used to. But when I do, you know, and I need to, I, you know, I'll ring them. I did sponsor some people and I had one sponsee that uh, we finally finished up and he moved on. And so now I, I try and focus uh, on what I can do on the internet and people that call me. I get calls uh, probably every week. I get a call from somebody that knows somebody that uh, can you talk to this person? And I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The power of carrying the message. Yes. And uh, yeah, I'll hit a meeting once in a while. I actually moved here from the Bay Area. So I've only been down here about seven months. So went to some meetings, but you know, it's not, it's not something I do religiously anymore. Like I used to go, uh, you know, when I first got out of recovery, I was going uh, sometimes twice a day. I just am so involved in so many other ways um, that uh, just takes up some of my time. And I just feel immersed in it anyway. You know, I'll sit down and read the big book once in a while before I go to bed just to keep refreshed in that. That's good. Excellent. Excellent. So on that note, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? Anniversary date is January uh, 28th. 2014. So I just celebrated that uh, a little while ago, and it's been three years. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. And how do you maintain that spiritual condition, that conscious contact with your higher power on a daily basis? I'm glad you asked that. I, You know, generally it's in the morning and sometimes at night before I go to bed. Uh, I get up every day and I sit there at the foot of the bed and I remember asking for help, asking to for help from God. And it all worked out. You know, everything that he guided me to has uh, kept me sober for three years. I've been able to help people. I've been able to help myself. And so I just sit at the foot of my bed every morning. And I just uh, take a pause and meditate, speak a little bit to God, and then kind of get up and get on with the day. Wonderful. Wonderful. So still applying a lot of the the foundation of early sobriety, which is like what, what I remember my sponsor telling me the same thing. You know, get up every morning and pray, ask for guidance, ask for help, keep me clean. Yeah. You know, another day. And then at night, just being grateful, you know, for yeah. another day clean, you know, and it's just that you're doing a, an inventory too at the same time. Oh, absolutely. It's a beautiful way to open and a beautiful way to close the day. Yeah. No question about it. So tell us a little bit about the sober living. You know, I mean, I, I know you wanted to, uh, you know, speak a little bit about, you know, what it was like as a... Um, as a sober living home manager, mm -hmm. uh, so tell us about tell us about that time in your life. Well, it, what led up to it is I uh, in one calendar year I was in three different rehabs, and you know obviously it wasn't working for me. And every time I would get out of uh, rehab, I would go back home and just replicate the same problems. And the last time I got I was getting out of the last rehab and I swore I was not going to go back uh, to another rehab. And they uh, they said, you know what, you, you shouldn't go home. You should go to a sober home. I didn't even know what one it was. I didn't know what they were talking about. And I said, no, I've got a home to go to. I'm going home. And they said, no, you really. And so they it, it took about three weeks for them to convince me. And finally, I said, you know what, I kind of agree with all this. I, I, I said, I know what I did last time. And I know, you know, how that didn't work out for me. So that's how I got introduced into sober living homes. So I, when I got out of the rehab, I uh, rented a car and drove straight straight to the rehab. I mean, the sober living home, and 
walked in, checked in. You know, I basically, the, the, luckily I had a really great counselor at the uh, rehab I was in, and she set the whole thing up for me. And I walked in, and, and I said, oh, my God, I, I don't know if I'm going to like this. This is, uh, this is just what I thought. You know, I, I'm with a bunch of strangers, and this, this can't be good for me. Hey, this is not going to be good. Everybody greeted me. Everybody walked up to me and was so nice to me. And, uh, you know, hey, I'm glad you're here. You know, what's your name? Shake your hand. Showed you around the place. And uh, so I stayed just like anything else, you know, just like our addict minds, you know, my first thing was, you know, plotting a way to get out of here and say to everyone, see, I went and everything's fine now. And I just, uh, it didn't turn out that way. I liked it. I enjoyed, I felt comfortable. I felt safe. I had people to talk to where I didn't before, um, you know, uh, as an alcoholic, you isolate. So Right, absolutely. Uh, it was just perfect. It was the perfect environment uh, and I enjoyed it. And uh, so I stayed about six months, and then they asked me to be the uh, assistant manager. Well, I was, yeah, about that time. And uh, shortly thereafter, I, they said, we, you know, we'd like you to be the manager. And I stayed another two years um, because I loved managing the, the house. So you've only recently uh, moved out of the house. Yeah, yeah. It's only been, um, I moved straight out of the house and I came to Santa Maria where I reside now. My mother was uh, ill, Alzheimer's, and she actually passed away when I got down here a couple of months later. But yeah. And so I I probably would have stayed at the house longer. Uh, But, you know, uh, family calls and, and I had to come down and. What is it about that environment that you can tell us about that's, you know, so impactful necessary yeah um, there's so there's so many words I can use because you're in a completely safe environment most people go into rehab and the minute they get out they just want to pick up their life where they left behind it which was usually garbage anyway yeah and they don't know which way to go so in many cases they end up going back out yeah so tell us about you know why you feel it's so important that that people bridge their new life with an opportunity like going to a halfway house or a sober living environment. Yeah, I've got a great answer for that, too. Here's the thing. When you walk into the, a sober living home, and if you've committed yourself to, to, to give it a try and, and make it happen, and even if you aren't like I did, you know, you're going to find that it's what it is. It's a blank slate. Um, you don't know anybody in the house. Um, you're um, removed from your, uh, in my case, it was across, you know, other than the Bay Area, it was another city. Um, that I lived in, it was a whole new environment. And there wasn't any anything that I was attached to. I was untethered from everything, any any bad influence. It was just a blank canvas. And it was it was so refreshing to, to just have a bunch of people, all my wreckage and all the things that I needed to clean up, you know, later were removed. They weren't staring me in the face. There wasn't anything. And I was able to just rebuild myself there and uh, not worry um, there was no familiar faces knocking on the door. There was nobody calling me on the phone. Um, there was no other outside influences that would make me anxious. I was just sequestered away in this nice little environment that uh, everyone else was having the same problems. And there was just comfort in everything on being there. I, I would say that it's very similar, that same feeling um, when you first discover the rooms as well. Yes. It's also a blank slate because you don't know anybody. Yep. Uh, it, it's a place where uh, you can you can feel 100% safe, even though at first you probably don't. 
But yeah. you know, after you've been there a while, you realize that everybody else is just as the same as you are going through the same things or have gone through many of the same things you have. And mm-hmm. there's that ease and comfort that comes with being in an environment with people that, that know what you're going through and that you can talk about these things without feeling like you're going to be exposed in a negative way. Exactly. It's that is so true. That's exactly what happens. You can sit in the backyard, you can sit and watch television with someone, you can just have a private cut. It you're with someone who understands you're not talking to to friends who don't have those problems or or your uh family members and it's that same antagonistic thing that comes about you know they don't understand why why they're asking you those questions you're talking to someone that actually knows exactly what you're going through and they're going through and you can relate to them and you can finally just relax. When you talk to them, you're relaxed. When you're talking to others who've tried to help you and they're a little angry at you, there's always this pensive you know, dialogue that goes <laughs> back and forth. And here, it, it was just, you, you just, all of a sudden, you blossom as a person again. You're not pretending to be something. You're not, uh, you're not looking at people that you've lied to so many times. Um, that can't, there's no connection there anymore. It's kind of broken. It can come back. Once you've you know stepped away, and you've blossomed and you've become that person that's not a liar, not a, you know wouldn't uh, well basically lying. You know we, we all lie to everybody. That's uh, no, I'm not drinking. No, I'm not doing any drugs. No, I'm not. Uh, no, you don't understand. I'm fine now. You know all those lies we've told and we've disappointed people. There, it's just you know we get to talk about how are we going to fix these things what's your sponsor doing what's he telling you you know you're you're conversing about those things you all go to meetings together a lot yeah absolutely yeah uh over over here in costa rica there is we have a couple of those and you see a lot of camaraderie build up from from within those within you know rehab centers in the halfway homes they stick together and yeah. it's it's usually that you know, getting rights to meetings, getting rights after the meetings, and then there's the meetings after the meetings, uh, especially like you say, they're in the home together, so they can discuss, hey, you know, uh, something interesting happened in the meeting last night. And and for those of us that aren't in a sober living environment, may not have that same opportunity at home. Yeah, exactly. That's so true. And, you know, uh, we used to, you know, there's so many people that come to a sober living home that have lost their licenses, um, lost their jobs, lost a lot of things. And those of us that had cars, we could take them places. We could take them to the grocery store. We could. So it's not just that you have a room and that you're away. You know, you also have opportunities um, that you wouldn't have before. Um and someone that to help you mentor you, someone that's been there a little longer, uh, can turn around and mentor you and help you through the process of acclimating to the home. Um, if you're having problems with your steps, they may be farther up than you, uh, and they can help you. There's just uh, you're not going to find that by yourself. If you if you don't live in a sober living home and you're out on your own devices, oh, should I call my sponsor today? Uh, should I bother going to this meeting here? You've got people saying, "Hey, I'm going to a meeting. Who wants to go?" And, right. you know, so you do make those meetings. You do uh, do your sponsor work. You do do extra work. You do, you know, during the house uh, at house meetings, I'd say to people, OK, you're going to meetings now. You've been going to meetings for how long now? What about some secretary work? You know, how about uh, how about sharing? I, I secretary two meetings and I would bring in my uh, some of the people that were in my house for a while and I would have them chair uh, the meeting um, to get them exposure for that. And, uh, yeah, you know, you, you can't find a better environment that's going to provide you with that much uh, opportunities to stay on track 
And, uh, and, you know, we, it was self-policing too. If we saw people sliding off, you know, we'd talk to them, Hey, you know, you're not going to meetings, you're not doing this, you know, uh, are you serious? Do you, you know, do you need some help? You're not going to find that out there if you're by yourself, right. you move to your parents, or you move back to your wife, you know, you, you make the calls, you make the shots, you call the shots. And if you're not calling them right, you know, maybe not so good. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how old you were the first time you drank or used drugs and more importantly, how they made you feel. Yeah. You know, I have a funny story, uh, a different story to tell. So it's like in two parts. Uh, I started drinking and using um, marijuana when I was uh, 15 and uh, I was, uh, then I turned into pretty much uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, I was the party guy of my group. I was the kind of guy that, you know, when we would all go out drinking, it seems like I always wanted to drink too much. And the others had more sense. And then I was the guy, by the time I was a senior in high school and after, just after high school, I was a guy knocking on people's doors in the middle of the week. Come on, let's go out and have a beer. Let's go, you know, I, I, <laughs> I got two six packs. And, you know, they're like, you know, I'm busy uh, or it's a school night. You know, what's, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> you were that guy. I was that guy. Yeah, I, I was that guy. And um, so anyway, uh, it definitely my my uh, I, I was aimless. Everybody else was going off to college and, and nothing was happening in my life because uh, literally I was drinking probably every chance I got at night. I did hold down a job sometimes. And uh, anyway, so the story kind of ended that uh, I stopped drinking because I uh, I got married and gotcha. I met a woman. I went with a woman and and we got married and had a baby right away. And so I really didn't drink for a while, like for quite some time. And uh, alcohol is definitely my drug of choice. And uh, what happened is, and this is why this story is so unique. And when I tell it at at, at meetings and uh, that I've been to, everybody scratches their head. I literally went about thirty years of my life. Um, you know, going from drinking every night and really on the precipice of becoming a, a full-blown alcoholic to stopping and later in life around uh, when I was uh, in my 50s, I started drinking again. And what I knew probably would have happened to me earlier in life had I kept going happened to me later in life. And I became a full-blown raging alcoholic in my 50s. Okay. All right. Well, let yeah. me let, let me pause you there because because I, yeah. I haven't asked I haven't you know I have a format. <laughs> <laughs> so the, so this is where I usually say okay. Well, a little before that. All right. So now that you're warmed up, uh, it's time for me to turn the show over to you, Robert. It's time for you to share your story: the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Robert, you can start right there about uh, where, where you left off. Uh, I yeah. guess it was 30 years into your marriage? Yeah, yeah. So you managed to stay sober for 30 years? I did. I did. Um, I know that sounds weird, and nobody has a story like mine, but yeah, that's absolutely true. That is wild. Okay, so go ahead. Uh, so anyway, um, actually, I was divorced. Uh, I did get divorced, and so I was single at the time. And I was, uh, I had a Great full-time job working at UPS, and uh, I. This is going to sound so silly, but it's true. And you know, they tell you to tell the truth, and I believe that. Um, I'm sitting around, and I'd, uh, I was watching the the show Mad Men, and uh, and I said, you know what? 
I'm going to, I'm going to uh, build a bar in my house. So I built a bar, um, really nice one. And uh, I started having cocktails at night and, uh, the old alcoholic ways, uh, started to creep into my life. And, um, five, you know, five years of drinking that way caught up to all of a sudden it wasn't drinking at night. It was drinking in the morning before work. It was, uh, uh, and at the very end, uh, before I had to, you know, literally quit my job, you know, I had to retire early because my drinking problem was so bad. Um, you know, I'd have the shakes in the morning. I'd come home at night and I would drink, you know, all through, you know, uh, into the night. And uh, it just uh, went on for two years and I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, it was I was uh, I was gone. And. Uh, there's clearly there was no doubt in my mind I was a total alcoholic, even though I didn't want to admit it. Right. So I did the right thing. I checked into my daughter came and said, uh, "Look, if you don't go to a rehab, I'm not going to speak to you anymore." And I said, "Okay, I'll do it." And uh, but at the end of uh, my last year of drinking, I lit I my bosses had uh, gotten wind of you know what was happening to me, and I just had to summarily just you know, retire one day out of, you know, I didn't want to retire, but I had to, I couldn't work any further. I couldn't step one further the way I was going and maintain a job. There was no way. And when I retired, um, I started drinking, uh, really heavily for a year. And, uh, my, my daughter came to me and said, you know, go to a rehab. So I went to a rehab and, uh, I got out. And I thought I was, you know, I, I thought, you know what, um, I don't, uh, I don't like anything about, uh, AA. I don't like anything about those people that I, I'm not drinking anymore. I went through their rehab and I'm fine. I went to meetings and I didn't like any of it and all of it was ego, you know, it's like, anyway, um, uh, so to Two months after I'd gotten out of my first rehab, I'm walking uh, near the uh, shopping center by my house, and I looked inside the liquor store, and I said, I'm going to go in and buy a bottle. I'm going to go home, have a couple of shots tonight, call it a night, and prove to myself that I'm not an alcoholic. And that's the last of that story I remember, that plan. (laughs) (laughs) And two months later, I, uh, I knew my daughter. I couldn't tell her anything. Um. But that just wasn't going to happen. So I checked myself into another rehab, and I got out. I had all the best intentions in the world, and I was all by myself. You know, I, there was nobody to to monitor me, and I had plenty of money. And it's not like I I couldn't afford to you know drink and and not you know, be, have a a living, you know, live in a house and live, you know, I wasn't going to be homeless or anything if I lost a job. I mean, I'd retired. And so it was kind of the worst case scenario for me and uh, started drinking again. And um, of course, this relapse was even worse. And I went, went all the way to the point, oh, where uh, I would only get up the last two months of drinking that year, I could only get out of bed and stagger to the liquor store and get a bottle and stagger home. It was about uh, a 
I don't know, 10 minute walk. And I could, the last uh, month of that, I just collapsed on, I would come in uh, the sliding glass door into my bedroom, collapse on the bed with a bottle in my hand. And uh, I would, I'd become so weak the last time I collapsed on the bed and staggered back from that liquor store. I said to myself, well, this is it. I can't walk anymore. There's no way I can get to the liquor store anymore. Uh, it's a good thing I bought two bottles because hopefully this just finishes me off and that'll be the end of it. I was so depressed and so despondent that I could not stop drinking. Um, I just couldn't take it anymore. And uh, so lo and behold, uh, you know, God sent somebody, uh, an old friend who hadn't seen me in a long time, came and came into my house uh, through the, the sliding glass door that I left open and uh, saw me, called my daughter. And my daughter came and got me and took me to the hospital. And uh, um, from the hospital, we went to the rehab. She took me straight to a rehab. The rehab would not accept me because I was so ill. I hadn't eaten and, I, you know, I was just in bad shape. They took me back to the hospital for three more days. And then I got into my last rehab and I said to myself, well, I'm sort of thankful. I am thankful I'm alive, but I still, you know, not know. I just didn't know what would happen to me at that point. Right. Uh, it, it was pretty, it was really rough. I, I was thinking, I, I knew I had a chronic alcohol problem. I wasn't giving AA a chance. I wasn't giving anybody, I wasn't listening to anybody. And, uh, um, but I sat and listened and I participated in that last rehab way more than I had before. And I, and I started to accept that, uh, you know, yeah, there's got to, you know, if I'm going to live, if I choose to live, I'm going to have to uh, change my ways. And I think that's why when we presented the sober living home, I said, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. Wow, man. That is, you know, the thing is that as you start to get closer and closer to the end, I can picture it. You know, I can picture you walking to the liquor store and the, you know the the shambles that you must be in and oh. you know what you've got to smell like and what you've got to look like and oh just my god like, oh, that you, i am so glad you brought that up it was so embarrassing to go in there the last time when i staggered in i must have smelled so badly because there was a line there and it was absolutely it, you know, I could see the looks on their faces like this guy smells awful. And I could barely stagger back to my house. But I, it's so funny that you said that because I didn't bring it. I, it's in my head, but I didn't think of it at the time. That's exactly how it was. No, oh, I'm picturing it. That incomprehensible demoralization, you know, that pit of despair, that, you know, that feeling of I just want to die. Like if yeah. I could just drink myself to death. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do it, right? Um, did you ever see that movie, uh, Leaving Las Vegas? Absolutely, yep. And uh, I started getting flashbacks of that movie as you were talking, because it just felt like somebody who was trying to drink themselves to death. Yeah, I was. I, I had lost all my friends. Everybody had turned their backs on me. Nobody wanted to talk to me anymore. Um, I had lied to everybody uh, and uh, lied to my work. I had to leave, you know, in complete shame after a 27-year career. I had to just walk out. The, no cake, no, no, you know, celebration like everybody else got. I had to just slither out 
the back door uh, by calling, you know, HR and saying, I'm retired. I'll come in and sign my paperwork. It was humiliating. It was terrible. I didn't want to go on. I, I just didn't. And I'd bought, I'd bought two bottles and I, that was my plan. I was, you know, I, one day I woke up uh, just before my friend had arrived and I, I looked out the window and I said, good God, I woke up again. I said, you know, and I drank some more and I was thinking, well, hopefully tomorrow it's not raining. So when they come find me, at least they'll take me out and it won't be raining because it had been raining, you know, it was in January. Yeah, that's how bad it got. It's like, yeah, I, you know, like I said, I was picturing it. Um, so then, you know, you retire from there after 27 years. How old were you when you retired? 60. Okay. All right. So, so you just barely, you know, you got there right at, right at the, at the 60 mark. You know, my sponsor says, you know, you, you, you slid in greasier than a gas station mop. Now in this whole story, you know, where, when did your wife leave you? Cause it's, you didn't say when she left you, but you know, I know she left you. Yeah. We, we divorced, um, when we had divorced years earlier. Um, so luckily she wasn't affected and she wasn't, um, yeah. They, so I had been single for quite some time. So luckily I didn't, I didn't, uh, have a spouse that was, yeah, that would have had to seen all that. It would have been horrifying. I'm actually thankful for that. Uh, my daughter, on the other hand, um, had to see all of it. It was just heartbreaking. So your your wife was already gone. Wife was already gone. Yeah, she would have been gone. Anybody would have been gone. You know that, right? And your daughter. So and then your daughter. She 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 couldn't take anymore. She yeah. threatened you multiple times to get into rehab, or or she would disconnect from you. Yeah, well, she's gone to Al-Anon, so she uh, she was prepared. She knew how to help. That it's so important, so yeah. important. That's another very important key part of this interview as well. Is that family members? Because I've had interv- I've had uh, emails where people send me and they go, "I don't know what to do with my with my sister. You know, mm-hmm. she's out of control. What can I do?" And I said, yeah. the best thing you can do is get to an Al-Anon meeting or a CODA meeting or an Al-Anon meeting yep. where you can be with other family members that are coping with this sort of a dilemma. Yeah. And you need to be strong on your own. And you need to understand what they're going through so you can understand what you're going through. Uh, yeah. But for you to try and attempt to save them, no one that is not willing to be saved can be. No. It is really a divine intervention that happened to me. You, you have to have that moment of clarity that comes into your life, or or it's just not going to happen. You know what I mean? So absolutely. You know, I totally agree, and I write blogs about that as well. All we have to, is communication, and once you communicate to someone all that you can, you can either walk with them to the grave, or you can stop and say, uh, "I'll be here if you decide to come back." There's not. You don't. You can't reach inside their head and t- flip a switch. You can't pander to anything. We don't. We don't listen to anything. We don't have any empathy. We don't care that you love us. We don't care. We care about drinking, and that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's 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 a sad way to look at a, a, another human being, but that's the disease. That's how powerful it is, and there are no other options uh, for people other than to, if you'll listen to me, and if I take you someplace again, will you? You know, luckily I did. Yes, yes. Well, that's that's the most important thing because there's so many horror stories out there, especially alcoholism. I think more people die from from alcohol poisoning than mm-hmm. well, except for nowadays the opioid the opioid yeah. epidemic is is has 
has probably trumped all that. But the fact that, you know, you get to that incomprehensible demoralization, there's that moment where, you know, you you just can't you just can't go on any further on your own uh, recognizance. Yeah. And, and it's almost like you have to do, you know, somebody says something and, it, and it, there's just that moment where you're like, okay, okay, you know, because it's either that or I'm going to die. And, yeah. and, and I don't want to drink anymore, but I don't, I don't know how to get sober and I'm living in this, in this hell, right? So what's the point? Yeah. So then you found your way into the sober living, but at this point, you're, you've been drinking for so long Mm-hmm. That, you know, you must have been going through DTs, going through withdrawals. Your body yeah. must have just, you know, been ready to shut down at any moment without the alcohol. So yeah. what were those first few months like and, and what did you do for detox? Well, um, before I entered the uh, the last rehab, I uh, they took me to the hospital and I was hallucinating in the hospital. I had no idea. I'd, I'd heard about hallucinations, but unless you experience them, um, they're not probably what you think. Uh, it's actually very real to you. And when it's explained that uh, by a nurse or a doctor that you, you're not seeing that and you're not hearing that, it could be scary, but maybe it's because, you know, you're so delirious, but you just kind of accept, uh, at least I did, like, really? That's not happening? Um, th- that guy over there is not trying to kill the other guy in the bed? Um, that man that I just pointed out to you didn't come punch me in the head? <laughs> um, yeah, that's... that's and and it was as real as is as, as could be to me. Um, so the deliriums and all that, I, I was able to be in a hospital. And by the t- but still, by the time I'd gotten to the, back to the rehab, you know, they wouldn't accept me first. And when I got came back the second time, um, I was in horrible shape. I mean, I, I could barely walk. I could barely walk. Um, sometimes uh, other people at the rehab would help me up and down the stairs. Uh, and uh, they would, you know, they could see the difference in me. And the irony of that is uh, when I left and then went to the, to the rehab, I just got to share one story. I, uh, one of the guys at, uh, at, at uh, my sober living home had uh, gone out and I found him. I had, I had to take him to rehab because he was in such bad shape. When I got back to that same rehab, when I went in to check him in, the woman standing across from me was staring at me with her eyes really big. And she walked up to me and she said, is your name Robert Apple? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, my God. I said, I can't believe the change in you. She was there when, they, when my daughter dropped me off. And she said, she said I was mostly dead inside. It was just like a, a zombie. So I, I was just shocked at that, that she, you know, so I, I didn't feel like I'd changed that much. But the thing is, we don't see it. It's yeah. the other people that see it. You yeah. know, for us, we're struggling. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're struggling to go to make it one day at a time. Yeah. Uh, you know, but then this time passes and, you know, somebody sees you and it's like, whoa. But that's a that's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling to have. Oh, I felt oh, I had such a smile on my face. You know, she said, God, you actually have a personality. And I was just like shocked, you know, I, you know how badly you can actually get and, and you think you're sort of normal <laughs> and you're not. It, it was so uh, bizarre to, to actually take, uh, oh, I'd been out of there about a year and a half to go revisit there and be bringing someone to help, you know, for help at that same rehab, that last one I was at. That was really surrealistic to go through that whole process and and remember it all, you know, a year and a half ago. When you 
kind of go back in time a little bit, it's it's just so impossible to believe. Yeah, it is. It really is. I, you know, I thank God every day, of course, and I sit on my bed and, you know, and, and I'll have flashbacks sometimes and I'll just cannot believe how beautiful life is right now. And at one point in time, I had those two bottles and I was just hoping that one of them would finish me off. And so when, when did the, a lot of the hallucinations and the delirium tremors and all that stuff start to kind of subside? Um, well, you're only in rehab for 28 days. So uh, I was still shaking. I really couldn't write very well. Um, so when I first got to the rehab, um, I was still in kind of rough shape. And it, and, and, oh my God, the, uh, the worst part I think of all of this is the insomnia. I just could not sleep. So when I got to the rehab, I was one of the guys that would sit up on the couch all night watching TV, you know, very low just because I just couldn't sleep. So I would say about, um, about two months in, I started to feel much better and, and about four months, uh, most of my insomnia was gone. And uh, that's just something you have to go through. There's not much you can do for it. Um, your body just has to get well. Right, right. So first, I'm assuming first you were in rehab before mm-hmm. you went into the... Well, we're living home, yes. Okay. And so how long were you in rehab? 28 days. Okay. So then from the 28-day the rehab, then you went you, into the, in the sober living and the, you were there for two and a half years. Yeah. Now you're saying that it was the the best thing that you ever did, but you know, was there any kind of like interesting stories that uh, you know it, it couldn't always be perfect? <laughs> you oh, know no. what I mean? Yeah. No. <laughs> so what kind uh, of was there any kind of uh, funny funny stories? Uh, you know, living together with a bunch of sober people because you know you got people that got less time than others, and some people that have a you know a little bit better foundation than others. Anything like that? Oh yeah, there was. Uh, there's always lots of characters in there, and as and as time goes by and you get more comfortable with each other, um, you can share so many stories. Um, I remember uh, I just wrote a blog about this because uh, it popped in my head. I'm, the uh, stories that we, you know, of course, there's lots of, of uh, humorous incidences that happen just normally with a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of uh, ex uh, addicts and drunks in a house. Um, but I remember we were watching the Super Bowl and we were all laughing at, at it because we we're saying, you know what? We'll actually remember this tomorrow. We'll actually know everything about the game. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, passing out somewhere or, uh, catching a DUI and driving home or whatever, or having to call in sick the next day and it was some lame excuse. And one of the guys that we were all tell- sharing stories about to how we used to call in sick from work and all those things. And this one guy, uh, popped up, I'll never forget this. And he said, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, you know, after the Super Bowl, of course, I was still drunk. And uh, so I called my boss and told him that, uh, um, hey, I'm in jail because I, uh, I got pulled over for uh, drunk driving, so I won't be able to make it in today. And he hung up the phone. And then he, t- he stopped and said to himself, when the hell did I say that? That didn't happen. <laughs> of all the excuses I could have come up with, I said that to my boss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so and, – and if you knew the guy, it's just – it's so much his personality too it, to say something like that. Like not be clever, 
just like say something that uh, you know is going to be a surefire, you know, well, I can't make it because I'm in jail kind of thing. And because he was still half drunk, he just didn't think think it through. He just grabbed the phone and did it, you know. <laughs> of course, there's pranks that go on in the house. There's always pranks, you know, and there's a lot of joking. And there's, yeah, um, lots of, I think the thing that I, that I miss the most is all the funny stories. I, they're only funny to us. Um, because we live through them and we understand them. If you tell them in, in a, uh, another crowd, people are just aghast. Like that's not funny. <laughs> that's, that's really inappropriate, but there, you know, and it was cathartic to share those because, and it made us think, you know, how silly we were and how ridiculous our behaviors were and how abhorrent they were, you know, how not that behavior is not, you want to, you just don't want to go re- revisit that in your life. No, absolutely not. Absolutely, I mean, it's it's like when you go into to a meeting, right? Or and if a normie's there, mm-hmm. and you know, and people are sharing their stories just like these, and you know, everyone in the room's cracking up, laughing. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and they're like, "Wow, okay, um, that's interesting, right?" You know, because they can't believe sometimes that people are laughing at the absolute devastation of somebody else's life, but. You know the reality is that we all get it. We we understand it's not funny what happened, but it's it's a funny it's a funny anecdote anecdote after the fact. You know, sharing our story with others for the purpose of helping others. Yes, and it just so happens to be entertaining because a lot of times we it's pretty funny stuff. Oh man, I laughed. We all laughed so much around that house because there were so many bizarre stories. Well, I'll tell you one. That uh, and I, of course I tell others this. Uh, it's sort of a sad story, but um, I was there about I don't know three weeks, and I was I had insomnia, so I was sitting up on the watching TV all by myself. And uh, one of the uh, new clients that we had in came walking through the front door, and it scared the hell out of me because I'm I'm sitting there watching TV. It's like one thirty in the morning, and all of a sudden I hear the front door open, and it's like quiet, you know, and someone's kind of creeping in. And so I was kind of frozen in fear, really. It's like, who's not coming in normally? Who's like tiptoeing and creeping in? And the the door sluts, shuts really slowly. And, and uh, I see this figure come into the, the, the front living room. And I recognize the face because he's a new guy. And But I don't, I'm like, something's not right. And, and I'm looking at him and I realize he's wearing a hospital gown. What? And I'm like. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what is going? And he comes over and sits down next to me on the couch and uh, he smells like alcohol. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I said, I got to go get the house manager. And he sits down. He had been he went off the reservation, went to some party or something, as the story goes, got into some sort of fight, uh, wound up in the hospital, broke out of the hospital in the in that gown, took a cab and came back to the house and thought he could walk back in. Typical behavior of an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Those are, that's, that's exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're... You <laughs> yeah, that, and I used to share that story with everybody, and everybody would laugh, and I'd say, you know, that's what we look like uh, to others. And someone who's not serious about being sober, uh, that's what this looks like, you know? And, um, it, yeah, I was just... Uh, I could not believe my eyes. I really couldn't. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. And he gave me one of those, you know, as he sat down next to me, like I'm not going to do anything or not even ask him why he's in a, in a, uh, uh, he doesn't even have 
shoes on. He's <laughs> all he's got is a, is a literally just the the robe, you know, that gown they give you. And he and he, he purses his lips and he puts his finger up and he goes, "Shh, don't tell anybody." <laughs> <laughs> it's like a scene out of a movie. <laughs> oh man, that's good. Unfortunately for him, I did tell somebody. <laughs> Makes for a great story. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, I suppose you probably want to hear some others that maybe aren't so great. Um, there, you know, like anything else, you in a sober living home, you're going to have all kinds of things that are going to happen there, and um, and you're going to hear a lot of things that are uncomfortable, especially if you're the house manager. And uh, so there's times where being a house manager is not the easiest job in the world, and um, the protocol for uh, you know, most sober, lo- sober living homes is uh, if you are tested and you get caught uh, coming up dirty, um, you know, you've got to leave. So one night it was uh, raining and it was cold and um, we didn't get a chance to test everybody. It, t- it takes a while to test everybody in the house on a testing. You call a random testing and you test everyone. They have to stay in the house. And sometimes, it, you know, to make get people to pee on command is not going to happen. So it takes, you know, a couple hours. So one of the girls, one of the young girls uh, that, uh, that uh, came up dirty, I was surprised. Everybody was clean except for this person. And, uh, you know, I'm supposed to tell her to leave. And uh, she's from Sacramento. So there was nobody to call. There was no way to get in touch with anybody. They, she had no money. I didn't know what to do. The protocol was to uh, make them call somebody. If they can't, they're going to have to, get, you know, just get out of the house. Um, cause it's unsafe to have you there, but you can't be, you can't be using, you right. can't, you can't come up dirty. Right. And, uh, so I looked over the landscape and I said to myself, you know what? It's late at night. I'm going to go ahead and uh, make a bed in the garage, uh, on the uh, sofa in there. And I'm just going to let her, you know, stay there and we'll, we'll, we'll sort this out in the morning. And, uh, so there's times like that where it's, it's, it's difficult. And it's also difficult to have a kid. I'm going to tell you this. Oh, this is this was heartbreaking to have two two things to have a kid uh, that I caught. You know, he came up dirty, and it was the second time, so he's he's got to go. You know, there's no there's no ifs ands or buts. Right, right. And to walk him out to the curb, and I said, "You call your parents? No, and you call me. I don't need anybody. I don't. It's it's fine. I don't want to call my parents. I don't want anything. I just want to leave." And I said, "You know," and I looked at him. I said, "Kevin, where you know, where are you going?" You know, there's no place to go. What you know? Uh, what What are your plans? You have a home here, and your parents are paying rent. Why Why not stay here and get sober? And he said, he just looked him in the eye. And he said, I'm not ready. And he said, and I'm not afraid to be homeless. And he took whatever belongings he had on his back, and he just took off walking. Oh man! And it just kills you. It breaks your heart because you're you know you're trying to to manage the house, and you're trying to help everyone. And the hardest thing, oh, is that. This, in the end, you can't help everyone and you can't save everyone. And it, it, it kills you. It, it takes a piece of you, you know, to do that job. You can only do it so long, I think. And after a while, it just takes too much out of you to see that over and over, you know, uh, enough times, you know. But that's, that's the nature of the job. That's the nature of, of the disease. That's the nature of everything. And all the people that did make it and that I was able to help and I was able to mentor and I was able to get them, uh, going in life, um, made all the difference in the world. It made, it made the balance and, uh, spending, you know, being an older gentleman that had, uh, gone through life, 
had a marriage, you know, had a job, had a career. I was sort of in a position where it, it, it could help young people, you know, like, don't worry, you can get back on track. It's a long road. Life is a long road. Just get started. You know, here's a plan. Let me help you. You know, where, where are you at in life? What do you need to do? What's your credit like? You know, even if you stay here a year and a half, if we don't work on your credit and, and at least get it up to like 650, you couldn't even afford an, to get an apartment. No one's going to let you uh, do anything. Just simple things. And like I would tell me, if you get a job, make sure you move up one rung on the ladder. I don't care if you just go to work at McDonald's, build a resume and you go to the next job and move up one spot and one spot. And eventually, you know, maybe you can find yourself in a management position where you manage people. You know, I had a chance to mentor um, young people and that was a, a huge thing for me, I, you know, to bring that experience to them. Yeah, that was that was the beauty part of that that job. It really was. Beautiful, powerful, powerful stories here, Robert. Man, chilling, man. Again, you know, you paint a beautiful picture of a horrible situation. You know, the that sadness of letting somebody go because you've got no choice and they're so wrapped up in the disease that there's absolutely nothing you can do. Absolutely yeah. nothing you can do. Just, uh, you know, give them the dignity of finding their own bottom. That's, that's yeah. basically what you're faced to do, so... Yeah, and I would always give everybody a big hug when I when they left, regardless of the circumstances. Even if I had to kick them out, I gave them a big hug and held it for a while, and I wished them well. And I said, you know, there's always a door open here too. That's beautiful. I'm sure that that is something that that any one of us would do. <laughs> you know, because yeah. uh, you you get so you get so attached, you get so attached, and it's a beautiful thing to feel again. It's a beautiful thing to feel again and to be able to reach out. You know, give somebody a hug and say, I'm here for you, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I would always uh, go back to my room and thank God. You know, I'd say, thank you so much for saving me. Thank you so much for coming into my life and giving me some guidance so that I can help others. Uh, I'd always remember that, you know, where it all came from. Absolutely. All right, Robert. Well, we're going to start to close up now. Okay. And the way we do that is for the newcomer. So I'm going to ask you five questions about mm -hmm. your early recovery yeah. And I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Yes. All right, let's do this. Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Uh, my ego. I didn't want to accept that, uh, that I was an addict or an alcoholic. I, I did not want to accept that. Yeah, many of us don't. Denial. Denial. Just total denial. Okay, so number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? That was my second week in rehab when, third, uh, excuse me, the uh, third week, third week in rehab when I was feeling so downtrodden, but I, I worked really hard in the rehab. I participated in all the classes and everything. And they came around, and I didn't even know if I was going to make it when I got out. I was, I just, I, I just didn't have much hope. And uh, everyone in the group, there was about forty people at the at that rehab. No, sixty people at that rehab at that time. It's a very large one. And they, uh, they wanted to vote me in to be the president for the term. And they, so they have like the camp president, and uh, you get all these duties and everything. And I was so inspired that that, uh, and I thought, you know, I thought. God had, you know, like, you know, orchestrated that somehow to make me feel like I should go on, like I, I should, uh, I should be inspired again. I should try and live again. Absolutely. And number three, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? 
You know, I do. And uh, it's a really obscure. And uh, it's written by Christine Campbell. And it's called, uh, With Vigilance, uh, A Woman in long, sobri- Long-Term Sobriety. And it's not... Uh, it's not. I think you have to order it online. I think it's electronic only, and it was uh, self-published. Uh, and the reason, so it's Christine Campbell, and you can uh, look that up online if you're interested. The reason this I like this book of all the books I've read is it was a journey that starts. It's almost like it, first of all, it's just written um, by not edited. There's this woman wrote the whole book herself, so it's not. And it starts from a young age when she started in the family dynamic. You see how the cauldron of an addict or an alcoholic can be born. And through her process and all through her life, and she wound up – and it's an interesting story too. She ended up uh, marrying uh, a musician that was in uh, in an extremely famous band. And uh, in her life chronicled all the way to the end, um, she became – uh, she worked in nursing homes and how she got her sobriety. But the thing about that book that I liked the most was it was so real. It's so raw. And you can see how an addict, or an, al- uh, an addict and an alcoholic can be developed in, from a family unit that was dysfunctional. And then how that, that addict uh, uh, works within their, say, 20s and into their 30s. And then when they become sober and into their 40s, and now she's like, you know, uh, 60 years old, how all that developed. And I just found it was a fascinating book um, because it's it was no had nobody's hands on it. She didn't hand it over to an editor, anything. It was all like a handwritten memoir. And it was just it's fascinating. I loved it. Great suggestion. That's the first time someone has uh, recommended that book. It'll be on the show notes, folks. And uh, yeah, I'll find the link on on Amazon. I'm sure they sell it on Amazon. Yes. Yeah, they do. Okay. So number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Oh, I can tell you that for sure. And it's two words, let go. And I asked him, I said, what do you mean by that? And this, of course, was my sponsor. And he said, you need to let go. He said, you need to let go of all the past. He said, we can't get through. You're blocking everything because you're letting the past uh, creep up on you again. You're letting everything uh, mount up on your shoulders. He said, you're not absorbing what's being told in meetings. You know, he says, I can tell. He says, you need to let go more. And it wasn't until I you know, listen to that and just decided not to worry so much about what everybody thinks of me and about what my family thinks and my friends and all the damage I've done. Concentrate on getting better. Let go. I love it, man. That's beautiful. <laughs> Beautifully said. Let go. I, you know, I've had to do that a lot lately. You know, um, yeah. just let go. You know, ask God to to allow me to, you know, you know the serenity prayer, right? Yeah. Um, and just, you know, there's certain things that are out of my control and I got to let those go. Right. Absolutely. It's so liberating when you can. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. can see it. Yep. Absolutely. And so finally, number five, if you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? Uh, I would say just for me and what I've seen others, listen. If I'm going to give one word to you, when you go to a meeting, listen. When you get a sponsor, listen. Uh, if you go to rehab and they have all these suggestions, listen. Listen, not just listen to hear the words or not listen so you could remember, remember, remember them or whatever. Listen to what's being said. 
if you do that, you don't have to go to three rehabs like I did. You could go to one if you just pay attention and listen. And uh, I, that's where I see people going wrong. Yeah, they can, we can tell humans to, to you know, pay attention and, um, uh, and listen. But listening means actually let it absorb into you and think of how you can act on that, not just listen so you could regurgitate it back to somebody. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Yes. <laughs> yep. You know, I got it. I got it. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I was the first two rehabs. Okay. I know everything that they're going to tell me. Yeah. But I did. I, was, I wasn't I was listening with, with uh, and absorbing it. I was just listening. It's two different <laughs> things. You know, listen to the point where you can actually not just say it back, but you can actually act on it. And, and when they tell you something, then you can em- employ that into your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great suggestions, Robert. And Thanks. thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Um, oh, can I mention something? Please. Okay. Uh, I'm building a website for uh, all the sober living homes to be involved in. And my goal here is so that people can get uh, find a re- – a, uh, when you come out of rehab, you can find a sober living home that's available. And because it's so important, if you don't go to a sober living home right after uh, rehab – chances are you won't go. And so I built an online website that all the sober living homes can be involved in. And in real time, they can update their room availability, just like a, like say, apartments.com or something. If you're looking for a sober living home, you can find a room in the area that you want, and you can get placed in it right away. And it's called findingsoberhomes.com. And so it's already live. Yes. Okay, beautiful. That will also be posted on the show notes. Is there any way, any other way that you can uh, suggest our listeners reach out to you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you can uh, reach me at my uh, website, uh, soberapple.com, and uh, you can email me. You can, uh, I've got my phone number posted on there, and I get people calling me, so I have no problem. If you have any questions, anything about uh, sober homes, uh, rehabs, staying sober, I don't care what it is regarding uh, recovery. If you have a question, feel free to call me, especially parents. And I did, mostly I get parents calling me. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. All right. Well, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks again, Robert, for joining us today, man. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Beautiful. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.